Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts, and society. I'm Rebecca, Assistant Editor at Prospect Magazine. This week, I'm talking to the philosopher and writer Amir Srinivasan about the right to sex, her new essay collection that explores gender discrimination, the politics of desire, pornography and freedom, and liberation, and much more. Amia is Chichili Professor of Social and Political Theory at the University of Oxford, and she has written about all manner of things, from octopuses, education, and anger for publications such as the London Review of Books and the New Yorker. Amia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So your essays in, in The Right to Sex examine topics such as male entitlement, pornography, uh, the politics of desire, the politics of sex in universities, um, and sex work and the state. Some first made their appearance in the London Review of Books, um, and others you mentioned you had first started years ago as a graduate student. So putting the book together, how did you come to these six essays? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I mean, all of the essays take up this general theme of sex as a political phenomenon, right? Not just a merely personal thing, although it is also that in its different aspects, as you mentioned. But I suppose they all come one way or another out of my experience as a teacher of feminism and feminist theory. So I teach feminist theory to both my undergraduate students and my graduate students. And it gives me the occasion to revisit texts and historical moments that were very uh, politically formative for myself and get to kind of see them through new, younger eyes. And one experience I repeatedly have as a teacher of feminism is, is watching how the tradition of feminist thought, especially the feminism that was produced in the US and in the UK in the late 1960s and 1970s, the way in which that tradition really resonates with my students' contemporary experience and also allows them to think more broadly about politics, think about things like the state and state power, carceralism, capitalism, the structure of the university, and so on. So yeah, all of the essays, one way or another, I think come out, uh, come out of my experience uh, as a teacher, some very directly. So the essay on porn is really about, is really a meditation on how my students feel about having come of age sexually in the, in the world of internet pornography. And as you mentioned, at least one of the essays comes out of my experience as a student. So the 
essay on professor, student sex and on campus sex more broadly, I started thinking about when I was a graduate student in philosophy, which is a very male dominated discipline. And so one that has maybe unsurprisingly um, quite a lot of relationships between professors and their students. Yeah, I'm very interested to learn about how your feminism developed uh, alongside your sort of studying philosophy, which is a very male field. Yeah, how, how has that kind of grown alongside your scholarship? The phrase you use, grown alongside, is, is a really apt mm-hmm. one because I never studied feminism, either as an undergraduate, I was an undergraduate in the US at Yale, or as a graduate student. I was a graduate student here at Oxford. And while feminism has now entered the sort of mainstream of analytic philosophy, it really just didn't have much of a presence when I was a student or a graduate student. There there were very few professors who were actively teaching, um, teaching feminism as a body of philosophy. So my interest in feminism developed entirely in parallel with and sort of distinct from my interest in kind of mainstream analytic analytic philosophy, but they have certainly influenced each other. My first experience kind of bringing them together was when I ran a sort of small feminism and philosophy reading group as a graduate student here in Oxford. And what was wonderful about it was all of these people coming out of the woodwork in philosophy, mostly students, but in a couple of cases, faculty members, people who really wanted to talk about the philosophy of feminism and revive that tradition. And so it's really been great to see how much interest there now is in the academic discipline of philosophy in feminism. And and I guess speaking of how, how male-dominated philosophy can be, in your introduction, you mentioned a conversation with a famous male philosopher who objected to critiques of sex because, in his eyes, it was only during sex that he felt truly outside politics. What what does that position miss? So I don't I don't want to. So I think the the phrasing "what does it miss" is exactly mm-hmm. right because I, I I don't want to deny that you know it is possible to escape or at least semi escape the forces of politics, and I don't want to insist that every act of intimacy is thoroughly politicized, right? It's just fully determined by political forces. But what I thought he missed in objecting to political critiques of desire was that, was the way in which, uh, you know, sex very often isn't a realm of free expression and freedom from politics for people. And it was sort of no surprise that he as a man and in particular a kind of white man, a white cis man, a white cis straight man, didn't feel like the sex he was having was in any way touched by politics. And in the book, I sort of joke, I say, you know, well, this is in fact what I did. I said, you know, what would your wife say to that? And of course she wasn't actually at this dinner, which is, you know, other issues about, about, (laughs) about sex and gender in philosophy. I mean, what's interesting in what he said was that it sort of resonates with the disappointment that so many women experienced in in this country, in the US and and in other, especially Anglophone uh, places during the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s, right? Uh, Which was supposed to involve a practice of sexual liberation. It It was all about free love. And that notion of sexual liberation got 
interpreted in a very specific way. It was about having the license to have, to be able to have, you know, lots of sex with consenting partners, you know, maybe sort of queer forms of sex. But what happened was so interesting. I mean, lots of men experienced this as a genuine form of sexual liberation, but lots of women didn't. Lots of women experienced it as a kind of new version of sexual unfreedom, right? They were free in some respects. They now had you know, access to the pill, for example, which allowed you to have non-reproductive sex. But at the same time, fundamentally, they were sort of having sex on men's terms. There wasn't a genuine kind of equality there. And, you know, this is particularly true for women of color, right, whose experience of, of sex is very often inflected by different forms of racism, whether that's the stereotyping of you know black women as being sexually promiscuous or the stereotyping of east asian women as being sexually submissive and interesting in servicing servicing men so i think what in short he was sort of missing was what sex what freedom from politics right what genuine sexual freedom would involve right and it's not that i want sex to be a totally politicized phenomenon but you i think that political inquiry into sex is an important prerequisite for real sexual freedom. You, you mentioned teaching your students there, and earlier you've, you kind of gestured to the experience of teaching young people who have kind of grown up after, you know, the sexual revolution. And there's a sense that with all the achievements, there's still a profound sense among them that they're not particularly free. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about how teaching your students has sort of shaped your understanding of both the ways in which feminism has succeeded, uh, the ways in which it has either failed or been made to fail. Yes. So I think there are some respects in which my students enjoy really important forms of sexual freedom that earlier generations just didn't. I mean, so one thing is I think they experience greater freedom to be honest and open and celebrate their, you know, sense of their own sexual desire and their sexual orientation. Um, uh, they can be more honest and open uh, about their sense of them, their own, their own gender. But at the same time, I think there are ways in which they can, they think of themselves as freer than they then come to see themselves as being, at least that's my experience of teaching them. So my students often come into my feminism class with a very strong um sex positive orientation. So sex positivity is that part of feminism. It's very dominant in, in kind of contemporary mainstream feminism in this country uh, and in the US, according to which people's rights to pursue sexual pleasure and their sexual desires are kind of inviolable. Um, and that any sex that's had by between consenting adults is, is okay, right? It's, 
consent operates as the sole criterion of kind of morally okay sex. And you can kind of understand why we are in a very kind of sex positive place, historically speaking, right? The idea that it's axiomatic that consenting sexual partners should be allowed to have the, the sex they want is actually part of the very important legacy of both feminist and queer struggles, right? Against a kind of patriarchal and heteronormative view of sex that wants to kind of police women's sexuality, but also police the sexuality of queer people, trans people, gay people, and so on. At the same time, my students, especially when I have them read the writings of, you know, so-called anti-porn feminists from the 1970s, which are very critical of dominant sexual practices, my students often find that those texts really resonate with their own experiences. And specifically what they feel is that internet porn acts as this didactic pedagogical device in their lives. It has told them what good sex looks like and has therefore trapped them in a certain sort of psychosexual script. And what's very interesting about this is that it's it's not just the women who say this, it's, it's also the men, it's non-binary people, uh, my gay students and my straight students. Like a huge number of them feel a kind of dissatisfaction with the sense of sexual possibility that they have. They feel like they are acting out a kind of, as I said, a sexual script that they didn't, didn't write themselves. And there's a sort of irony here because the internet is supposed to make everything possible. And in some sense, you know, anything you want can be found on the internet. And nonetheless, there is this very strong pull for everyone's sexual desires and activities to conform to each other, to all converge on a single script. When reading your book and, and that essay in particular, I think the internet crept up in my thoughts a lot as something that is, it operates on the level of images. It's constantly kind of giving us scripts for just how to be in, in, in many different stages of life. Um, and over the past year, I think I've just been increasingly troubled by by what it's doing to, to my brain. Do you think the internet is making us more or less free? Or is that a kind of impossible to answer question? I think it's very hard to answer. I mean, I think one thing to remember is that only 50% of the world's population is online, which is kind of extraordinary. For those of us who are online, which is just about everyone in the United Kingdom, for example, it's, <laughs> you know, we just imagine that like that is the world. The world is a, is, is a, is a world lived online and that's not, that's not true. And for those people who aren't online, mostly people in the global South, it seems to me that they'd probably be better off with the capacity to be online, right? But yeah, I think it's very hard to know. I think it's it's sort of, it's, it's too soon to say, I don't think we have the kind of right historical distance and frame and perspective to be able to to understand what the internet has really done to us. No doubt the answer ultimately is going to be mixed, right? It's going to have created new forms of freedom and taken away other forms of freedom. I mean, to take just sort of two obvious examples, I think the internet has been extraordinary at giving certain marginalized groups platforms who wouldn't normally have those platforms and allows them to wield certain forms of political influence. And so there is a kind of democratizing tendency within the internet, which is, I think, overall, 
all to the good. At the same time, I mean, the internet has, you know, takes away our attention. It erodes our capacity to to attend to things, to focus, to to absorb ourselves. And I think that is bad intellectually. It's also bad for our, our interpersonal relationships and it, and it's a, for, a form of unfreedom. So I don't know what the kind of ultimate calculus is. I don't even know if it really makes sense to say overall the internet makes us more free or, or less free. I think it makes us free in certain ways and it takes away freedom in other ways and in ways we don't yet fully understand. Yeah, and it's it's a fitting answer too, because in your introduction, it is your essays do look for this place of ambivalence. And yeah, there, there are no no easy answers, but um, we'll see. <laughs> um, so going back to the story of your students and how they often tend to feel more free than, than they are, um, something I was thinking about when reading your essay collection is this rise in pop culture of uh, what's called choice feminism, which is sort of the idea that if an action comes from a woman's own choosing, it ought to be free from criticism or at the very least celebrated because it is her choice. There is a kind of increasing backlash and skepticism against it. When reading your book, I came across a phrase that I think really captured some of the trickier layers in that conversation. um, And it is, I am asking that we do not confuse the necessities of negotiation under oppression with the signs of emancipation. Um, so that's there's there's so much going on in, in, in that quote. Um, can you tell us a bit more on what you meant by this? Yeah, so this, this brings us back to the conversation about sex positivity and the kind of political critique of desire. So as I said, it's... it's Feminists of you know the 1970s, not all of them, many of them were very interested in subjecting absolutely everything to critique, including apparently free choices that women were making. For example, apparently free choices to be in relationships with men, to marry men, to have children, to, to dress in quite feminine ways. And they wanted to ask women and ask themselves like, why are we doing this? And is this really an expression of freedom or are these desires manufactured for us by patriarchy, but also by capitalism, right? And historically speaking, there has been a backlash against that uh, interrogation of, of choice and desire pioneered by early feminists because taken too far, that sort of inquiry can turn into a a kind of inquisition, a moral inquisition that, um, you know, asks women to not act on their desires, right? To, To, for example, not be in a relationship with men, even if they really want to in some sense, right? Or or not to dress in feminine ways, even though that is the kind of form of expression that feels best for them. So what I'm calling for in that quotation is uh, is a kind of ambivalence about these cases in which women and 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 men and people generally want something, but that 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 desire itself has in some sense been manufactured by something that's kind of problematic, right? So I'm asking us to tease apart um, what it looks like for people to make their way through the world under systems of oppression, right? The kind of accommodations that we all make with sexism or racism, 
we, how we, how I'm asking us to separate that out from genuine emancipation. So for example, it's, it's, it can be, so, I mean, to take the pornography case again, various feminist theorists of porn uh, have pointed out, uh, for example, that it can be a solitary experience to be presented as an object of sexual desire. So someone like Jennifer Nash, who is a wonderful contemporary black feminist theorist has argued that interracial porn with black women uh, and white men doesn't just have to be racially oppressive, can also be kind of liberating for black women who uh, aren't always centered as the objects of sexual desire. Now, that's one of the cases in which what I want to say is, well, let's not confuse the kind of necessary accommodations that we all make under something like racial and gender depression with what what the world would look like if we were truly emancipated from racism and sexism. And picking this idea of genuine emancipation, I'm sure for, for, for lots of women, you know, but other people as well, when they are in the world thinking of how to act, there is a sense of feels like there's no world outside this world. Um, my desires, my sense of self, the things I do every day will constantly be shaped by messages I get um, and messages I get from people with more power than me or messages I get from power structures. So what does freedom and emancipation mean in, in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is we don't really know. It's something we have to, it's a kind of horizon we have to struggle towards. You know, I don't I don't think we can we can specify what what we would look like, what our how we would relate to each other if we enjoyed genuine kind of sexual liberation, which I think would have to go hand in hand uh, with liberation from capitalist exploitation, from racism, from imperialism, basically from all systems of domination. So what I'm when I'm talking about kind of sexual liberation, I don't think that is something that can exist by itself within a in, within a broader context where there are other systems of domination and oppression. So what does that world look like? I mean, I just don't think we know. And that's part of what's exciting about it is the prospect of forms of transformation that that we can't totally anticipate, that we ourselves will probably never undergo, but it's a, it's a world we're hoping uh, to bring into being. Yeah, and it would be good to get a, get a sense as well in this podcast of how intricately the right to sex, you know, with its discussions on feminism, it's also intricately tied to conversations on anti-racist struggle, class struggle, and the movement against capitalism. So tell us a bit about how these ideas come together, particularly in your last essay on um, sex work and the state. So the final chapter of the book focuses on the way in which for mainstream feminists in the UK and the US and, and elsewhere, the law and specifically police and prisons Law is often looked to as a solution to the problems of sex. So sexual violence, non-consensual sex, domestic violence, uh, sexual harassment, and so on. Uh, in the US, this, is, this tendency feeds into 
the American epidemic of mass incarceration, which, as we know, is an ep- is a is a is a problem that implicates both race and class. So. Uh, People of color, especially men of color, are disproportionately incarcerated in the U.S., but so are poor people of all races. Now, the problem with the embrace of carceral, so-called carceral solutions to you know the pathologies of sex is well, for one thing, they they don't really work. You know, obviously, some men are dissuaded from say sexual harassment or, or or rape by by punitive carceral laws, but um, you know it, it hasn't offered any kind of structural solution. The, the the solutions are often very individualistic, right? So they're about a, a few bad actors rather than about a broader system of psychosexual domination. And and as the case of America's mass incarceration shows, uh, these carceral solutions feed into um, systems that are themselves oppressive and problematic on the grounds of race and class. And they also, the, the carceral feminism can also, of course, act as a cover and justification for imperial activities. So think about the way in which uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. <laughs> I think there is an insane fact of Donald Trump was persuaded to act in Afghanistan after someone had showed him photos of women in miniskirts uh there from wow yeah wow. amazing so there, there's a there's a very clear link there right right there is you know and 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 um uh you know laura bush it, it justified her husband's campaign into afghanistan on, on the grounds of you know having to rescue these women right um so but but also you know these carceral solutions very often harm the worst off women so women of color uh, in in the U.S. in the U.K., poor women are disproportionately harmed by um, solutions to kind of sexual crimes that that uh, unfairly target men of color, um, and they don't really address the real problem. I mean, so if you take something like domestic violence, the problem is uh, the real problem is not simply that you know men aren't in prison, but it's that uh, poor women. Uh, don't have the money to be able to leave their husbands, right? But also domestic violence rates are very strongly correlated the world over with male unemployment, right? And male poverty. So poverty is one of the things that fuels male sexual violence. It's not the only source of it. And what happens when you just focus on these kind of carceral solutions is that you detract from the way that capitalism as a systematically exploitative practice, one that generates intense inequality, um, is one of the root causes of um, a lot of problems that women face. Sex work is another great case of this. So lots of feminists and certainly lots of right-wing legislators you know, support using the carceral state as a way of, quote, solving the problem of sex work, right? And sometimes they think of themselves as doing this on behalf of sex workers themselves, right? These women who they see as being sexually exploited by Johns. But the problem with uh, this is that criminalizing sex work doesn't eradicate sex work. What it does is it simply states changes the legal status of those women who sell sex. It now makes them into criminals who can be arrested, who aren't able to go to the police if they've been subject to sexual violence or raped. 
And it doesn't address the reasons people, women on the whole, go into sex work, which is that um, there aren't better available forms of work. They need ways to feed their kids. They are, say, undocumented workers who don't have the legal right to take on uh, you know, other forms of paid work and so on. So that final chapter really tries to suggest a reorientation of feminism as a whole away from a kind of carceral outlook back towards uh, the roots of the women's liberation movement where, you know, women thought a lot of, I mean, they thought that the emancipation of women had to go hand in hand with the end of class domination and racial domination. Uh, that chapter also makes the the interesting point that feminism is is sort of predicated on women wanting to have more power um, over the patriarchy, but there are individual women who do have lots of power and should be interrogated what they do with it. And you do mention that there are some women in power for whom, I guess, the everyday day-to-day um, experiences of sex workers seem less important than this future idea of abolishing all sex work. I think feminism, uh, like many kind of radical movements, has has had some difficulty with owning up to the ways in which uh, it does have power, right? I mean, feminism is sort of defined as a relation to women's sort of relative powerlessness as compared with men. But especially since like the 70s onwards, certain feminists, they tend to be from the global north, they tend to be very rich, have accumulated quite a bit of power. So power in shaping domestic law, the law of sexual harassment, campus sexual laws, and things like the Title IX regime in the US. Also international law, so the way in which, for example, uh, rape is now seen as a crime of war. I mean, these are all really important instances where certain feminists have wielded a great deal of power and have been able to, in fact, call on the power of the state um, to change our social and political realities. And I don't think that the wielding of power is in itself a bad thing, but I think that it's very dangerous to deny that one is wielding power because it invites a lack of criticism about the effects Uh, that one's wielding of power has. And I think the sex work case is just a great one. Sex workers disagree on lots of things, but current, you know, people who are actually engaged in sex work are pretty univocal on not wanting sex work to be criminalized, not because they all think that sex work is great or unproblematic, but because they just know that the criminalization of sex work makes their lives harder. And I think some feminists who are very much invested in anti-prostitution stance are wedded to a certain symbolic politics, right? They're wedded to the kind of symbolic eradication of sex work that is done through, you know, the criminal law. So this isn't a, a thought that's, you know, particularly original to me. It's, it's, it's something that comes out of the work of two fantastic sex worker writers, Juno Mack and Molly Smith, who, who authored a wonderful book called Revolting Prostitutes. And, and this is their kind of analysis of what's going on for anti-prostitution feminists. They, they see these anti-prostitution feminists as, as, you know, very often genuinely caring about sex workers, but willfully believing that caring about sex workers is consistent with the 
symbolic satisfaction that is granted through using the law to criminalize sex work. And as a as a final question, um, I mean, your final chapter does sort of open up this quite exhilarating horizon of of a freedom. We don't know what it might look like yet, but but it is it does feel within reach. But then I I kind of wanted to take you to the UK in particular with the government, um, which may, may just a glance at the headlines, sort of be proposing measures that are the exact opposite of, of the things that you describe in your book. How, how do you feel as, as someone on the left right now? Are you hopeful? Are you mostly depressed? What's, <laughs> what's I, know, I think I'm a combination of, on one hand, like despairing and wildly hopeful. Um, and the the despair, right? So if you read the headlines, I mean, I think there's very little to be hopeful about in this country in particular. You know, we have we have no organized political party left, I mean, to speak of. Uh, and we have a, a dominant Tory party that is just, you know, it's hard to describe the the pathology of entitlement and narcissism and and doublespeak that is running this country right now. And, you know, and then remember after the Sarah Everard's horrific kidnapping and murder, you know, there was the very unsurprising response on, the ha- on behalf of Boris Johnson was that, you know, we're going to put plain clothes policemen, you know, in clubs, just, just, just so textbook ridiculous, right? So, I mean, we have, in this case, a policeman who has murdered um, and assaulted this this woman, and the solution is going to be sort of more police. You know, mm. I mean, uh, so I think there is in the, in the UK in particular really important conversations to be had about the future of the left. Uh, the reason I'm I'm hopeful is because there are at the same time a lot of really great young leftists. Um, in this country, writers, theorists, activists, and, and, you know, almost all of whom are interested in a left politics that takes not only class seriously, but also race and gender. There is a kind of pressing question about how you create a multicultural, multiracial, feminist, working class coalition um, and I don't think we have solved that problem in this country or in the U.S. And the failures of Corbyn uh, speak to that, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm, I remain, <laughs> I remain hopeful nonetheless. Thanks so much, Amia. I think you've left the, our listeners a lot to ponder and maybe even feel hopeful about. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye and see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks so much. 